Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. Now you can sign up for our newsletter, Talk Money Weekly, for curated money stories from around the web. Every week, I share my favorite gems from Twitter, YouTube, and other podcasts I've listened to. It's short, fun, and educational. And the best place to stay tuned for updates on our upcoming season three. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com forward slash weekly, where you'll also find all the details and links we mentioned in our episodes. Hey everyone, Mesh here from Talk Money. On today's episode, we're doing something a little different. We talk a lot on the show about how to navigate the world of business, but what we haven't acknowledged is that the financial system is specifically designed to benefit some people and not others. Race plays a huge role when it comes to money, from getting bank loans to raising capital for your company. It's no secret that black Americans are treated differently than their white counterparts and even other minorities in this country. The microaggressions, the backroom decisions that exclude them, the outright hostility, the racism embedded in the fabric of America. Black people have to navigate obstacles that others never even consider. Even those who refuse to call it racism know that there's something wrong. I want every white person in this room who would be happy to be treated as this society in general treats our black citizens. If you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. Nobody's standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. I want to know why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. That's Jane Elliott a longtime anti-racist activist and educator whose speech in a 1996 documentary went viral recently. What was true 25 years ago is still true today. But after George Floyd was murdered on camera by a police officer in May, the single-minded attention we've been focusing on COVID-19 turned sharply towards the Black Lives Matter movement and the injustices that have been ever-present for Black people since the founding of this country. It extends to every part of life, housing, education, banking, healthcare, you name it. Today, we're bringing you three stories on one facet of the Black experience, running a business. When we first opened up, people didn't think we were going to last. When we moved in, I remember people that worked at a lot of stores out there were just looking like, oh no, not them in the neighborhood. So at the time, I didn't know that we were the only Black-owned distillery. I had every reason to believe that given at the time there were probably 500 distilleries in the country, a few of them had to be Black-owned. It really didn't register for me. So I was like, okay, these people don't want to give me money, even though I know for a fact that they give checks to people with less. So let me just have more. So then when I go back and I ask them, we both know why they're saying no. Let's get started. I look at myself as a human cartoon. <laughs> um, I'm very bright. I have a colorful beard. You never know what color it might be. It might be green. It might be purple. It might be green and purple. It might be red. I got known for my colorful beard. So you see this bright person, you know, he just doesn't look like anybody you've seen before. And then you have all these different stores like Hermes, Tom Ford, Christian Louboutin. And then you have this store that kind of fits in that same characteristic. But, you know, the doors open. You have music playing. 
and then you see me, this colorful guy, and it just makes you like, let me go see what's going on here. Along with being colorful, Chris Shelby is busy. He's lived in Atlanta since 2011, and in that time he's been a fashion student, a luxury menswear associate, a stylist for Tyler Perry Studios, a brand designer for up-and-coming rappers and artists, and for the past four years, a curator and manager at Adam Shop, a high fashion concept store in Atlanta. But he still makes time to style artists for music videos and photo shoots. If you've seen the video for Migos' Bad and Bougie, you've seen his work. Then in the midst of working with Mr. Perry, I wind up working with a hip-hop artist by the name of Young Jeezy. It was Young Jeezy's search for a specific pair of shoes, Rick Owens sneakers to be exact, that led Chris to his future business partner Zola Diaz. A mutual friend suggested that Zola could hook him up. And he was like, man, I have a friend who just moved here from Switzerland named Zola. Uh, he doesn't have a store, but he has everything set up in his condo. So, like, you know, a guy has a bunch of clothing in his condo. That's kind of weird, but okay. But weird or not, Zola's home boutique had the high-end designers that Chris needed for his clients. He started coming by regularly. And as they spent more time together, Zola told Chris about a store he had back in Switzerland called Adam Shop, A-T-T-O-M. Zola wanted to open an Atlanta outpost, and he loved Chris's hustle. In 2016, he decided to go for it, with Chris at his side. And Chris brought his own talents and personality to the store. Getting big brands that people here in Atlanta haven't really heard of, I became that guy to get them. So I was bringing a lot of those artists into the store. I was bringing in Migos and Future and Lil Yachty and the Jonas Brothers and all these other artists, bringing them into our boutique. Technically, Chris's job title was associate. He was there to sell clothes. But his style and ambition and his friendship with Zola made it more than just a job. You know, I remember the first time I heard Zola say, you know, Chris is my partner. That right there made me feel like this is mine as well. Like, this is my baby. This is his baby. We're in this together. I'm going to protect my baby, watch over my baby. I started to feel the same way he did. Adam Shop wasn't just a cool store. It gave people in the community a place to go where they knew they'd be welcomed. We also got known for educating kids who are in the fashion, you know, and parents would come in and say, hey, Chris, my son might not be doing too good in school, you know, but I know he loves you guys' store. So we wound up putting the arcade in the store. The kids from the middle school, one block old, would just stop by and I'll let them play the arcade. A lot of the kids that stopped by were students from the international school down the street. Their enthusiasm for Adam Shop forged a relationship between Zola, Chris, and the school's higher-ups. The principal even came to the store to meet them. From that day on, we wind up giving donations to that school. Um, if it's a pair of shoes for a rally they got coming up, we just started getting involved in the community just to show our appreciation for them believing in us. The shop was a hit with all different kinds of customers. But it was also the first Black-owned business in the complex, a compound stretching six city blocks called The Shops at Buckhead. Chris and Zola's neighbors were elite brands like Tom Ford, Diptyque, Jimmy Choo. And even though Adam Shop is just as sophisticated, not everyone was happy to see them move in. Oh, no. When we first opened up, people didn't think we were going to last. It was almost like when we moved in, I remember people that worked at a lot of stores out there were just looking like, oh, no, not them in the neighborhood. Because, you know, we brought like a different crowd, you know, from... The street cats to the youth, they weren't used to seeing that. And I feel like we broke that barrier where everybody felt they could shop out here. 
Across the country, three years before Adam Shop opened, another company was breaking barriers in a different industry. My name is Chris Montana, and I am the CEO of Denord Craft Spirits. And I'm Chanel Montana. I am the co-owner of Denord Craft Spirits. Chris and Chanel Montana started their micro distillery, Dunord Craft Spirits, in Minneapolis in 2013. But before dipping a toe into the world of alcohol, they were two young people who were passionate about politics. He, at the time, was running the College Democrats for the Minnesota Democratic Party. I was an intern at the Democratic Party while I was in college. Came back to Minnesota for law school, and while I was in law school, I was starting to get an idea of what life as an attorney would be like in Minnesota. But I also was on the side, always trying to scratch the itch of what was that business that I wanted to own because that was always a drive in me. One of Chris's hobbies was brewing his own beer. So he thought about starting a brewery. Chanel came from a farming family that produced grain. And Chris wanted to open a business in his hometown and combine her rural roots with his urban aspirations. When they first started making and bottling spirits, they set out with a goal in mind. The thought was, let's put our stamp on this thing and let's try to create a brand that is transparent. And that was gonna be our addition to the distilling space. The craft beer industry is booming in Minnesota. Well, now Minnesota-made spirits are popping up. The first batch of vodka from Minneapolis distillery, Du Nord Craft Spirits, arrives in stores today. In 2015, Du Nord opened a cocktail room as part of the distillery. That same year, Chris attended his first American Craft Spirits convention, where he can meet and network with other distillers and suppliers. He was the only black person there. As it became more and more clear to me how homogenous the community was, then the mission changed. And then it became about, we need to open the doors. And the only way that we can do that is if we go out and actively recruit persons of color and women, both of whom massively underrepresented in the industry, and try to get them into decision-making and technical positions so that way they would be marketable, not just to me, but also you know, in their careers, and then they can go off and do other great things and eventually become the other owners. Because once we knew that we were the only one, there was no interest in remaining the only one. Even with all the public support and community involvement, Chris and Chanel had a hard time with the initial fundraising. Starting a business is hard no matter who you are, but when you're starting a business while black, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. With the black man and white woman at the helm and an expensive new venture to fund, they encountered some obstacles. The distillery is essentially a brewery with more stuff, and that more stuff costs a lot of money. Uh, biggest obstacle was ignorance. In my mind, the only way to get money to do something was to go to a bank. And none of the banks that I went to talk to had any experience with distilleries. And I didn't exactly fit the profile. The only loan we could get was through a community development organization who had a vested interest because they were also our landlords. And so they were the ones who were able to get a $60,000 loan for us. Less than 1% of banking assets in the U.S. are run by black people. As a result, black entrepreneurs are significantly less likely to receive the type of funding to start a business. If you can't get a loan to finance your business, you have to raise money as equity. But there are also challenges there for the black community. I like that today, I, my wife and I own 100% of the company, but the struggle from where we started to now was immense. 
got a lot more gray hair than all my other friends at the same age. Let's put it that way. When you're not white, every rejection comes with baggage. The heavy question, is it because I'm black? And then there's the opposite dread, becoming a token investment. As Dunord got more popular, investors came around to try and join the venture. But they always wanted to rip out the soul of what Dunord was and really just kind of throw me up on a pedestal somewhere and say, hey, you know, look at this brown guy. He did this thing. And that's not why we started it. So Chris and Chanel kept pushing forward with full ownership of Dunord. As COVID-19 spread, Chris and Chanel were able to pivot their business to something a lot of distillers can make, hand sanitizer. We could see the writing on the wall as things started to evolve with COVID. And we did everything that many businesses have had to do um, of looking at, you know, what reserves do we have? What can we pull from? Where can we delay payments? And then a couple of days later, we started getting requests from people in the community for hand sanitizer. Eventually, the hand sanitizer became a revenue stream that rivaled our spirit sales. Dunord has become a community staple in the years since they've opened in the multicultural Lake Street neighborhood. Three years after being surrounded by white guys at the American Craft Spirits Convention, Chris became the first black president of the association. But back in 2013, his sole focus was on starting a business. So at the time, I didn't know that we were the only black-owned distillery. It really didn't register for me. Where I think it made things a little more difficult in this exact same way that, you know, I stand out in most places in Minnesota. Usually people just weren't ready to see me as a distiller. One day, not long after they'd opened, the Tax and Trade Bureau came to Denord for a visit. They're an agency that regulates places that make alcohol, breweries, wineries, and distilleries. They held up their badges to show they were federal agents. And they entered our facility, walked right past me, and went to a friend of mine and started asking him questions about the place. It's like, you got to go back to that guy over there. You know, no, no one thought to come talk to me. There's usually that kind of pause where people say, huh, how is that possible? And that's, you know, when people don't see you as what they think is supposed to be in that space, then it makes it a little more difficult to convince people that you belong there. I never really had a doll that looked like me growing up. And the one time that my parents tried to give me a black doll, I actually started crying. This is Yelitsa Jean Charles. I am the CEO and founder of Healthy Roots Dolls. As a little girl in Queens, Yelitsa didn't see herself in the toys that were most popular. Barbie, the queen of the dolls, was blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And even when they offered more diverse skin tones, it was literally just that. The same doll, painted a darker color. Barbie doll has blonde or brunette hair down to her toes. And, and to these are experiences that I took with me as I was growing up. And I was heavily influenced, like most children, by the media and content that I was consuming. It wasn't really until Bratz came out for me as a child that I saw dolls that started to push the boundaries of what it meant to aesthetically look cool and like interesting. Yelitsa went on to study illustration at the Rhode Island School of Design. While she was there, she started examining the media she was raised with and the effects it left on her. And that included her relationship with her hair. I didn't really know that I had curly hair as a kid. I just knew that I had big hair and it was always getting braided. And in the Black community, there's a lot of conversations around what's good hair, perming your hair, 
taming your hair, controlling your hair, not looking wild. Um, so yeah, I went through this phase where I recognized that I didn't really know how to do my hair. It didn't make sense for me as a young woman at the age of 20 to not know how to care for my hair as it naturally grew out of my head. And I started to unpack my experiences as a black woman and recognizing, you know, I may not have seen images of women with hair like me or skin like me being celebrated, but that doesn't mean that I can't celebrate myself. In Yelitsa's junior year at RISD, she started tackling representation at the root. She decided to focus on children's media, toys, characters, and educational tools, and assembled an all-black team of classmates to start the planning. I would say that within the toy industry, they do what they know works. There's really not a lot of innovation. And I was heavily influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement in my work with social justice. And the best way for me to do that work was to educate and empower children from a young age to unpack the issues and not have the same experiences as I did growing up. In 2015, just before starting her senior year, Yelitsa launched the Kickstarter for Healthy Roots Dolls with Zoe, a black doll with stylable, curly, natural hair. Hi, my name is Yelitsa, and I'm the founder and creative director of Healthy Roots. The Kickstarter gave them a successful launch pad. They ended the campaign with almost 700 backers. Yelitsa also secured grants and funding from programs at RISD and Brown University. But when it came to raising money from investors, the enthusiasm evaporated. So, you know, at first it was very general because I was new to the industry and people were just making introductions. But then I realized, like, no, you can't just talk to anyone. You have to find people who are within your industry or looking for people with your product. So I was like, okay, let me look for funds that are focused on women, that are focused on people of color, that are focused on children's products. And then I realized that these people didn't think the opportunity was big enough, that these people didn't think I had the right team, that these people just didn't think I could do it. So I was like, okay, these people don't want to give me money, even though I know for a fact that they give checks to people with less So let me just have more. So then when I go back and I ask them, we both know why they're saying no. It's no secret that venture capital is mostly dominated by white men. If you didn't work at a big tech company, go to one of the Ivies, or aim to go after a big market, it's not worth the risk for them. But how do you know if an opportunity is big enough if you don't understand the market or the population it's serving? Instead of being discouraged, Yelitsa got to work. I spent a year, heads down, I literally just did programs. I won every accelerator program I was in. And that led into 2019, getting into an accelerator program with Capital and then winning a $125,000 grant from the Quicken Loans Detroit Demo Day. And then at that point, I didn't need investors money. We had reoccurring revenue. So I think it worked out. Then on May 25th, everything changed. George Floyd died in police custody after an officer pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for at least seven minutes. The police department says the officers were responding to a report of a forgery. Now, video from a bystander, though, has surfaced showing a white officer kneeling on Floyd's neck. Floyd could be heard saying he couldn't breathe, and he later died at a hospital. Being black in America should not be a death sentence. This officer failed in the most basic human sense. George Floyd, a Houston native and father of five, was murdered by the police in Minneapolis. His death, like the death of so many other black people at the hands of cops, was captured on camera. As soon as the video started spreading on social media, anger and a demand for justice crackled across the country. Chris of Adam Shop was watching from Atlanta. Of course, seeing everything that was going on, I was pissed off. Like, I was mad as hell. I could have been that black man. 
that could have been me and not being able to do anything because in that situation, you're not really able to do anything. You know, you're sitting there in handcuffs and they got the upper hand on everything. I was like, enough is enough. Justice definitely need to be served. And we just came from off of what happened to Aubrey. I think in the black community, enough was enough. Back in Minneapolis, the day after Floyd's death, the protests began. I wish I could remember more. I almost feel like it's a, some sort of protective response that I don't remember more. It was heartbreaking. And I sent an email to our staff, and I told them, if you want to go to the protest, I'll pay you for the rest of the day, but go ahead. I remember the next day talking to my husband and saying, did you see the news? And he said, yep, and I can't even talk about it. It's just so typical at this point. The first move for me was not to anger. It was just sadness. But I had a lot of responsibilities. I had people who were looking to me as their employer. I was a business owner in the epicenter of the protest. The third precinct where those officers came from is on the same block as the Nordcraft Spirits. After that, we could see a lot of the stir, obviously, in the community and a lot of the organizing starting to happen. Because I felt a responsibility to our community, we just started working. And that was, I think, the medicine that just keeps you moving. If you stopped and you thought about what was going on, you'd just be in tears. And I'm not going to say that I didn't shed quite a few tears. But at that particular moment, it was, well, we got to start working. Chris and Chanel did what they do best. They started organizing the Lake Street community and scouting where help was needed. There are protesters and we have hand sanitizer, so let's get it to them. Because there's also a, a pandemic going on and they need water, so let's go buy water. And we set up a tent next to the third precinct and that's what we did. And we ended up getting tear gassed. But that was the job. I mean, that's what businesses are supposed to do. They're supposed to be an asset in that time because even though I was... You know, previous to that, thinking I was going to go out of business, I still have more resources and I can go over to the grocery store and buy up all the bottled water that they have and make that available for people who might not have a dime to their name. As the protest continued, violence seeped into the crowds when night fell. Some of the cops responsible for keeping the peace incited fights and aggravated the tension. Looters appeared and shops were at risk for fires and other damage. Now all that hand sanitizer that we were making was a liability. When you have fires being set all around you, the last thing you want to be sitting on is thousands of gallons of high-proof ethanol. We ended up having multiple conversations with the third precinct because we had to relate to them what was in there. You know, We had to instill in them, as this was all unfolding, if there is a fire at Denora, do not let firefighters in there. We started moving that sanitizer out to another location before we got hit Thursday night, early Friday morning, when some people came in and tried to burn our building down. Had we not moved all of that stuff out, not only would Denord be gone, but the better part of that block would be gone. In the early hours of May 29th, someone set a fire inside Denord Craft Spirits. Chris and Chanel were monitoring the situation, hoping their sprinkler system would kick in and prevent the worst from happening. It did. But the water did almost as much damage as the fire. Chris and Chanel were left to grapple with the destruction and the emotion that came with it. But as longtime Minnesotans, they saw the larger picture. You know, I grew up in the area, so I remember what Lake Street looked like in the 90s, and it wasn't that great. There was so much progress that had happened, and, you know, in a couple nights it was gone. And to watch that was heartbreaking. I sat in my apartment building, which was also on Lake Street. And the night after we got broken into, my apartment was set on fire while I was still in it. 
But I sat here watching people breaking into buildings and looting the liquor stores, Foot Locker. I've never seen anything like it in my life. The whole time I was watching it, I was reminded of why we got to where we were. And while I wanted nothing to do with it, I was terrified that if they burned another building, if they broke another window, that the other half of the country that is so critical to moving the needle on this issue would focus on the broken window and focus on the fire and miss the fact that this latent anger that exists in this community is real and justified. Chanel and Chris love Lake Street, and Denord wasn't the only space that was damaged. Hundreds of businesses, mostly immigrant-owned, were also looted and burned. Chris and Chanel processed the loss differently. You know, when it initially happened for the first few hours, I was very angry. I was very angry. And it took me a minute to realize how this one thing played in a greater story. And I had to step back from the damage that I'm seeing to realize that this could create much more good. And if that happens, if there really is a chance that we can come out of this better as a community, as a society, if this can be a turning point, then burn it down. Do it, because that is more important. If you know Chanel and I, you'll know that Chanel is, um, she wanted to be as supportive as she possibly could for me because she knew that this was going to be a tough time for our family generally though neither of us knew exactly how tough. My husband, you know, he has a different perspective. He is a black man in America, and I am a white woman in America. Um, that anger, though it was there for a moment, never overcame him. And he always had this greater vision in mind and this greater understanding. It took me a while to get there, and it took some very honest conversations with myself to get there. I think the only thing you can do is recognize that everything that's happening is real. And that alone is a crushing realization. And it's it was hard for her, it was hard for me, it's still hard for her and it's still hard for me. But I can't imagine what this would have been without her. I think it would have been devastating and I doubt that I'd be on the phone with you. That same Friday, hours after the fires at Denord, demonstrations across the country began. That included Atlanta, where protesters marched downtown. Chris wanted to join the march, but he knew he had to be careful. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I do have to think about being a black man and going out there and protesting. I have to be careful because I could get caught up in the wrong protesting, you know? And maybe I'm not going out there to do the wrong protesting, but because I'm out there, I could get, you know, caught in a crowd of things. So it was definitely a mix of emotions where I had to sit down and think about my actions. Adam shop had been closed since mid-March due to the coronavirus. But Chris and Zola were planning to reopen in just a few days, on June 1st, their fourth anniversary. They were laser-focused on getting up and running again, bringing back customers, turning over merchandise, updating their stock. That night, Chris was surprised to hear that the protest was overtaken by a violent crowd, and they were heading towards Adam shop. My condo is looking over the shops of Buckhead. So I see everything. Me and my best friend were sitting here. We just ate dinner. And we're seeing that things are starting to get crazy down by the CNN building, which is maybe like 20 minutes from here. You know, I was just like, wow. But it still didn't hit us that it was going to move up this way. 
Chris is part of a group text with other managers at the shops at Buckhead, and his phone started to light up. Attention, you guys, they're saying that the riot and looters are coming up towards Buckhead. And I was just like, what? Literally, maybe 30 minutes later, a video surfaced of them breaking into the Gucci store. And I was just like, damn, that's crazy. That's right there, you know? Suddenly, the action wasn't just on his phone. It was outside his window. I had my sliding door open, and I started seeing a lot of cars just backing up. I was like, that's a lot of cars out here at 1.30 in the morning. Like, something's not right. And then, out of nowhere, we start hearing glass break. Then a friend of mine named Harrison wind up FaceTiming me. He's like, bro, bro, they're in your store. They're in your store. I'm about to send you a video. And he sent me that video of people, about 20, 30 people running in and out of my store. And I just dropped the phone and was like, oh, my God. Honestly, if my best friend wasn't here, I would have went down there. And I'm licensed to carry. I would have went down there with my gun trying to save my store and potentially could have got myself hurt or hurt somebody or got myself caught in a crossfire because I am a black man out here in the midst of this riot and looting that the police could mistake me for being one of them. Chris weighed the risks. Should he run into the fray to defend Adam's shop, putting himself in danger? Or stay safe and watch the store he'd built from scratch be destroyed? This is, you know, it's materialistic things. I hate that this is happening to my store, but you have to make the right decision right now. So I started texting and calling Zola. We just kind of sat here and just watched it all happen. And I locked my door and I didn't go to sleep that morning. I stayed up to maybe like seven o'clock. And a few friends of mine saw the video of our store leaked on social media. So when we walked down there that morning, a few people that we know met us down there and were just like, hey, Chris, we're here to help you clean up. Everything was just gone. Right now, the past week was supposed to be a big week for businesses in Atlanta. Many had planned to reopen after being closed due to coronavirus. But those plans put on pause after many businesses in downtown Atlanta and in Buckhead, well, they were broken into after things took an ugly turn during the Friday protest. Adam's shop was empty. Without the carefully curated clothes and shoes, it was just another hollow space. It almost felt like we did all this for nothing. You know, it kind of made us feel like nothing. Like we thought someone would have stepped up and was like, you know, not this store. And everybody's telling me, Chris, you guys should have put a sign that says black owned. Why should I have to put a sign on the front of my store saying black owned? We don't look at ourselves no different from the, the Louis Vuittons and the Louboutins and the Time Fords. That's the reason why we moved out here. You know, because we wanted to be a Black-owned business in the midst of these businesses that were only known for being in that type of environment. They'd planned to spend the weekend getting the store ready for its grand reopening. Instead, they spent it sweeping glass and assessing the damage. The space was filled with crap. Bats, rocks, sledgehammers. Chris was heartbroken. So he sat down and re-watched the video of the break-in. I saw that there was a lot of kids, the ones that were doing a lot of the looting, I feel like a lot of them didn't even know what they were protesting for because they didn't have no direction. They didn't have anyone telling them, we're trying to get our voices heard for the right reasoning, but going out and looting, this isn't going to solve anything. He also wanted to put things into perspective. This wasn't just a robbery, and it wasn't just a riot. We still got to remember, we're coming from off of being locked inside for three months. 
you know, and I remember back in March, I had a conversation with my mother and I said, mom, if people start running out of money, what happens when you don't have money to buy anything? You take it, right? Because not only were people looting, you know, clothing stores, they looted the grocery store over here. And some people could be looting for certain reasons, but some people could be looting because they don't have nothing. They don't have food to feed their kids or pampers for their newborn baby or whatever the case might be. You know, you had to look at both sides of what's going on. And I had to do that. I didn't even call the police. Speaking of the police, that Sunday, they were at the store cleaning up the last of the mess. They were getting ready to leave when they saw a group coming towards them. We looked and there were 15 police officers walking up towards us. And they were like, we got a phone call that there were two guys down here vandalizing the store. And we were like, this is our store. And one of the cops was like, okay, sorry about that. And they left. They didn't know who called the cops, but at the shops at Buckhead, 15 police officers approaching an empty store is enough to get people's attention. That felt like shit because I feel like we already got the spotlight on us. And, you know, where our store sits at, there's a French restaurant, like literally right in front of our store. And people are sitting outside eating, having brunch, like nothing didn't just happen last night. Then for that to happen, it just wasn't a good look. Why does it take 15 police officers to come walk up on two black guys in this neighborhood where it's four o'clock during the day? It's not dark outside. It's 4 p.m. on a Sunday while people are peacefully outside eating their food. Why would we be vandalizing the store? You know, we've had an incident like that before, and I think we just kind of got used to it. I'm just like another day in the life. We can't talk about black businesses without talking about black people. The systems that put them at a disadvantage are as old as the United States itself. There are countless ways that non-black citizens have been able to build wealth and power over time. Homeownership without the crush of redlining, more agreeable loan terms, admissions policies that favor white people. The list goes on. And when black people do access less welcoming spaces, they can end up being reduced to stereotypes. You know, my husband graduated with honors from law school. Like, he was an amazing law school student. And no matter when he walked through campus, someone would ask him if he played football for the football team. For Chris and Chanel, being an interracial couple makes them hyper aware of the differences in the way they're seen. Incidences with the police. There are numerous times in the last, what, 16 years that we've known each other that we just know that if we get into a police incident, it's going to be different if I'm the one communicating and talking versus him. And that is something that, honestly, we don't really even need to talk about anymore. It's just no. But it's not just the police who treat black people differently. Racial bias seeps into every aspect of life, even the smallest parts. When people talk about white privilege, that's what that privilege affords you. The ability to have interactions and not be treated with animosity, kid gloves, or condescension. When it happens nonstop, it shapes the way you interact with the world. There are so many experiences with, you know, microaggressions or instances where people perceive my tone as inherently angry because I'm a black woman and they're not used to black women speaking firmly and with confidence. I feel like most of the racism I have experienced has not been direct, but it has impacted my ability to smoothly navigate adult life and opportunities. Racist assumptions can turn a routine interaction into a dangerous, ugly situation. And when systems are designed against you, Family and community become more important than ever. When I was 15 years old, you know, when I first got my driver's license, right, my mother always told me that, hey, Chris, you know, you ever get stopped by the police, 
I want you to call me on speakerphone. I never truly understood that, you know, but I always did it. The older I started getting, I found out why, because my mother was just afraid that I can be in a situation where you never know what can happen. So she wanted to hear everything that was being said. From the ages of 15 up to I'm 32 years old right now, I still call my mother every time I get pulled over by the police because I'm afraid of what maybe can happen. It's a catch-22. Do you become smaller and quieter to try to appease a racist society? Or do you become bolder, more assertive, and risk whatever consequences may follow? For some, being visible is a political act. Particularly now, on the back end of the murder of George Floyd, I'm much more open with the fact that my experience has been different as a black distillery owner than many others. And I have so many people over the years who have been begging me to be just that little bit more out in front. And I've always said that I didn't want people to buy what I made because of what I look like. I wanted them to buy it because it tastes good. And all of our stuff has won awards, right? So it does taste good. But if they don't see you, then they don't know that they can do the same thing. And if I really am about moving the needle, then I also have to be okay with being out there. That visibility and representation is what motivates Yelitsa too. When kids see diversity as they grow up, it makes them aware of how big the world is. It's because of the conversations that people are having based on what's going on in our country with all the protests and a lot of parents recognizing I can be doing more at home to have these conversations with my children and looking towards products like Healthy Roots dolls as a tool to begin those conversations because you don't have to be black to have a black doll. For a lot of small businesses, damage and burglary are covered by insurance, at least partially. But not every business has access to the same protections. Zola of Adam Shop is in the U.S. on an immigrant investor's visa. So a lot of loans and things he couldn't get. So we pay out of pocket. A lot of brands that we deal with, we're paying that out of our own pocket. We're responsible for everything that was taken. One of the ways they're trying to cover the cost of repairs is by utilizing the new American go-to in times of hardship, a GoFundMe where friends and strangers alike can learn about what happened and donate to the cause. They're already halfway to their $100,000 goal. The love and support from everybody is what's kind of making us want to do it again. Because it's not just about us, it's more about our community in Atlanta. Denori Craft Spirits is in a very different situation. Their insurance will cover the damage and their circumstances will allow Dunor to survive. The Lake Street community, however, is extra vulnerable. Some businesses took a lapse in their insurance so they could afford to pay their employees throughout COVID. Chris and Chanel decided to use their political savvy and social capital to support their neighbors. They want to rebuild Lake Street in an equitable, sustainable way. So they started a GoFundMe too. And the hope is that we can use that money to pump it into existing businesses such that they can stick around. And that's an intermediate need. But in the long term, there's going to need to be funding, which is hard to get through any legislature that's represented by both sides, right? The original goal was $30,000. They reached it within a few hours. They raised the goal number again. Then again, they've now raised over $700,000. What we want to make sure is that those small businesses that really were the heart and soul of this community are able to craft their business to be new again. 
because, you know, historically, black and brown businesses are undercapitalized. They're less likely to get investment funding. They're less likely to be approved for a loan. So it's going to need to come from the private sector. And we're going to need that funding to, one, keep these properties from falling into developers' hands who really have no interest in the real rebuilding of Lake Street other than how they can make money on it. And two, put together the funds so that way aspiring entrepreneur of color can see this as a zone where they can get the funding to make their idea real and have a place for their business to flourish. It should look like the city. It should look like the mosaic that Minneapolis is. And if we do that, 20 years from now, we'll be able to look at that district and say this district is what grew out of that seminal moment when George Floyd was murdered. For Lake Street, in fact, for the whole country, this could be and should be a defining moment, not just for businesses, but for communities in general. Rebuilding gives us the opportunity to change things for the better, even if it's under devastating circumstances. If we rebuild it the way it was before, or worse yet, if it's used as a tool for gentrification, and the chains come in and the same cookie-cutter six-story condo building comes in, that would be a shame. But I think that we have an opportunity here. In the meantime, Adam Shop has gotten a lot of attention. So I want to bring in two black business owners right now. Zola Diaz is the owner and Chris Shelby is the manager of Adam. It's a store that happens to be a black owned business and we're joined on the phone now by store manager Chris Shelby. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I felt so much support. We've literally been on every news <laughs> I want to say we're probably like a little local celebrity now. My cousin uh, tagged me in a post saying, oh my God, my cousin Chris has made the news in Detroit. So, you know, Atlanta has been supporting us, man. Atlanta's been supporting them because they support Atlanta. While news stations jostle for Chris's time, his priority is still, even now, his customers. One guy told me, we need y'all. And why do you think he said that? You know, he's one of my good clients and we've built more than just a friendship of him coming in the store and buying things, but I'm kind of like his style advisor, you know, whenever he's going out on a date with his wife, and whenever he's going to anything, he's coming to get an outfit for me, and you know, he sends me pictures that when he gets home after he gets dressed, I kind of became a part of his life, so it's bigger than just us selling people clothing, but people have really taken us into their personal life. No matter what happens to Adam's shop, the spirit of the store, the spirit that Chris and Zola created together, isn't going anywhere. I feel like we already crossed this hurdle because in this area, it wasn't known for a black business to succeed over here. For me, it's important for us to get back up and rolling, especially as a black business, to show you that, you know, we can't let them knock us down. And because of the community, we're in this together. In the startup space, VCs and investors are rushing to correct the practices that have led to a mostly white, mostly male corporate environment. But for Yulitsa and a lot of other Black founders, it can feel like too little too late. I believe that not all money is good money. And if you weren't willing to support and be there in 2015, I don't know why I should be making space for you in 2020. As a brand, Healthy Roots Dolls has been built around embracing diversity and centering a need in the Black community. Now that other brands are feeling pressure from consumers to hold their boards and bosses accountable, there's a lot of ground to cover and a lot of missteps to rectify. A black box on Instagram and a vague promise to do better isn't going to cut it. You know, there are all these businesses now who in 2014, 2015 tiptoed around 
the conversation and they didn't necessarily want to take a stand or a side. And now consumers have expressed their buying power and that their values have to align with the brands that they're supporting. It's disappointing that companies have to make it clear where they stand rather than having it be an integral part of their missions and values inherently. But I will say that it allows other people to see like where the country stands and the direction that we're moving in and hopefully propel other people that way as well. Yelitsa's values and the gaps she sees in the toy market are what catapulted Healthy Roots dolls to its current success. Her sales have increased since the COVID-19 shutdowns and the protests. So why did it take this long for investors to realize the potential of something that seems so essential? I think a lot of it is, you know, undervaluing the black dollar, even though black people have trillions in buying power. Black people define trends. Black people are a lot of companies' marketing strategies. And I don't know, I guess the I don't know how else to say other than like racism. Racism is the reason why these things weren't getting done, because people prioritized what they considered their ideal audience or the people worth listening to. So now, Yelitsa gets to enjoy her success and reap a large majority of the rewards. But the biggest reward isn't the money. I don't care about selling dolls. I care about the impact. So like the fact that our mission is getting further because people are sharing it. And that means more little girls will say, oh my God, she looks just like me when they're open their Zoe dolls. That's what's important. There is so much inequality in America. It's hard to know where to start to dismantle it, whether you're on the outside trying to understand or on the inside stuck in the thick of it. But a good place to start is with something white people have been able to build on for centuries, ownership and equity. Our society is held up by the people, the government, and the businesses. And if you don't have the economic power that the business community can offer and the opportunities to build wealth, to own property, to truly experience that American dream, then you're always going to be shut out of some of the political power. You're always going to be in a disadvantage. In tech, this recent push for investors to diversify their portfolios needs to come with actual interest and enthusiasm. If it's just about filling a quota, we'll end up in the same place we are now, with black founders receiving 1% of venture capital. Without that capital, there are less black-run companies, employing black people, and eventually exiting and creating wealth that can be used to reinvest and pass down. I will say that it is incredibly frustrating watching all these funds do things that we were told could not be done. All these funds are creating specific funds for Black founders, or all of a sudden now these office hours are appearing out of nowhere. And you know, like people are like, I need more inbound from Black founders. Like people were already trying to talk to you. I don't want people to invest in Black people because we're Black. I want you to invest in us because we have good ideas and you think those ideas are valuable. Wealth in the U.S. is so imbalanced that we should consider more drastic measures. Considering there's so much money flowing freely in corporate America, it's not as extreme as you think. Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, has committed $100 million of Netflix's cash to be deposited in black-run banks, specifically to be lent out to black enterprises. That's one step in the right direction. If we really wanted to do something radical... These giant corporations would give the black community equity in their companies. Ownership is everything. Someone suggested that it could be done through trusts. Let's say Google, Apple, like these big companies took millions of dollars and put them in a trust that was for the black community. Like the average savings of a black household versus a white household is something like 12,000 versus 40,000. 
that's because we don't own anything. That's because we don't have a stake in anything. We're just building value for other people. While politicians and citizens alike figure out what to do next in regards to policing and racism, Minneapolis continues to rebuild. The Dunord Recovery Fund is still growing. They recently partnered with former Senator Al Franken and comedian Sarah Silverman. Chris and Chanel split their time between talking to public officials, helping operate a nearby food bank, making hand sanitizer for the ongoing COVID crisis, and raising their children. I understand where that anger comes from and the scar that all that anger left on our city and in other cities. If the process of trying to heal that scar, if it serves as a physical reminder of what happened, so that way people can't just move on, they can't forget this, then perhaps it'll be a catalyst for some kind of change. And if that's the case, then it was worth it. And a few burned buildings don't equate to a life. It's disgraceful that it took another black man's murder for officials to start paying attention to deep-seated racism. But George Floyd's legacy will have an irreversible impact on this country. It already has. I hope that all this will have been worth it. I think that this is somehow different, but I always think that it's different. So the pessimist in me says, you know, don't die holding your breath. But I hope that somehow we've struck a different type of chord. And if so, then... This will be one of the best things that ever happened to the city of Minneapolis and to the United States. Minneapolis will recover. The damage across the country, in every city, will be repaired. But do we want things to look the way they did before? Do we want to board up the wreckage and move on, as if we didn't have a period where it was abundantly clear that as a country, we needed a reminder that black lives do in fact matter? This is a time of upheaval, but we have to take action in our own lives to make it stick. For those of you who think you have no power, call out racism when you hear it. Don't let casual bigotry slide. Tell your loved ones when they're wrong. Support Black-owned businesses in your own neighborhood, whether you're getting your morning coffee or your next outfit. And for the love of God, find out who your representatives are and make sure they're speaking for everyone, not just themselves. For those of you who invest in companies and run VC funds or banks, ask yourself, what's missing in the world outside my own? Put your money where it'll make the most difference. There are so many incredible folks who are doing just that. Follow their lead. Disrupt racism. Let black people tell you what they want to change and trust them to do it with your backing. You have more power than you think. And when it's safe to travel again, you know where to find a stiff drink or a fresh new wardrobe. I think we'll all need it. When Lake Street's back up and running, come and visit. I hope it's a place that people can come and they can reflect on what happened and be able to really experience the joy of Lake Street. Come in the summer, it's warmer. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take you sneaker shopping. That'd be dope. I'll be the perfect person to help you get your swagged out sneakers. I got you. Thank you to Chris Shelby, Yalitza Jean Charles, and Chris and Chanel Montana for sharing your stories with us. To contribute to the Dunord Recovery Fund and Atom Shop Fund, or to find out more about Healthy Roots Dolls, you can find the links in our show notes. We're hard at work on Season 3, coming to you later this fall. Keep an eye on our feed for bonus episodes, clips, and our Season 3 trailer. We can't wait to share it with you. This episode was edited and produced by Olivia Briley and engineered by Maya Terrell. 
Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com for further deep dives and to hear other episodes. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends and, of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.